Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John, chapter 10. We come to another amazing section of Scripture. Last week, we started chapter 10. We saw Jesus saying that He is the door. He gave a figure of speech. And we kind of broke the whole passage down. Um, We we looked at verses 1 through 6, and we saw that Jesus is clearly gathering for himself a flock. He's gathering a flock, and we would ask the question, why are you doing that? And he answers it in verses 7 through 10 by saying, I'm doing it to give them life. I want to give my flock life and give them life abundantly. And we come in this section in verses 11 through 21 to really the question, how? How are you going to give them life? If you're gathering a flock for yourself to give them life, how do you do that? How do you gather And how do you give life? And he's going to answer. He does it by laying his life down for them and then taking it back up again. Verses 1 through 6 in chapter 10 are a figure of speech, Jesus calls it. This is a figure of speech. It's not a parable, and we talked about it last week. It's a parable of sorts. But it's a a figure of speech. And in verses 1 through 6, Jesus just tells a story. He doesn't identify himself in any part of the story. He just tells a story, and we have to remember that there's no break in the original. There's no break between chapter 9 and chapter 10. It just keeps moving through. So the Pharisees say, we can see. Jesus says at the end of chapter 9, no, you can't. And he kind of tests them. He gives them an opportunity by saying, let me tell you a story. He's done this several times in the Gospel of John. Let me me give you an illusion or give you an analogy or give you a metaphor and see if you can pick up on what I'm saying He's done it by saying, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're going to have any part of the kingdom. That's an absurd statement, and many people saw it as such and left and ceased to follow Jesus. But those who knew and believed that Jesus is who he claims to be, he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, therefore there's something deeper in there. They're going to press into that. They're going to say, man, that sounds crazy, and I don't understand what you said, but I know that you're the Son of God, and therefore you meant something by it. So without any break, Jesus gives the Pharisees a test, as it were. Do you understand what I'm saying? And he he tells them, I am the door of the sheep. There is a, a fold of sheep. I'm calling sheep out of the fold. I'm calling them out of the pen. I'm gathering a flock for myself. Thieves and robbers jump over the wall. They just want to steal, kill, and destroy. And they don't understand, further confirming that what Jesus had said was true. They are blind. They are blind. At the end of our time last week, we concluded by saying, we need a door and we need a shepherd. We need a door. We need access to God. That's why Jesus says, I'm the door. It's really what he says in John 14:6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. I am the gateway. I am the entrance to eternal life. But he doesn't just lead us to eternal life and then say, you know what? Go directionless. Go leaderless. We need a door, but we also need a shepherd. Jesus is the only door, and he is a wonderful shepherd. If you remember in um, verse 10 of John 10, Jesus says that he came to give life and life abundantly. My friends, Jesus is not content with you and I eking out some form of existence in this life. Just a, a bare A miserable existence. Well, I'm saved. God saved me, but my life stinks. Jesus is not content with that. He is all about giving you life abundantly in the here and now. Eternally, yes, but in the here and now. Satisfaction beyond your wildest dreams. Joy in him that is an indomitable joy. It's a joy that will never go away. And we're going to see why that is this morning. So if he's all about giving us abundant life, the question is, how does he give us abundant life? How does he give us that abundant life? And that is what we are going to answer this morning in verses 11 through 21. So um, follow along as I read John chapter 10, verse 11 through 21. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
And I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred again among the Jews because of this word. Many of them were saying he has a demon and is insane. Why do you even listen to him? Others were saying these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. And a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind. Can he? Father, these are rich words. There is so much truth in these words, and I pray that by your grace we would see them. Oh, God, grant courage, grant boldness, grant an unshakable faith for those who have heard your voice and are following you. God, give us eyes to see. These words are supernatural words. We think with our physical minds we can understand supernatural words. We can't. And so we come humbly before you this morning and we renounce self-reliance and we clearly, emphatically, defiantly even, against our own souls say we cannot see anything from this text if it isn't for your spirit. So, Spirit, open our eyes. You love to point us to Christ. And this passage is all about Jesus and what he has done and what he promises to do. So show us Jesus. Spirit, do what you love to do and show us Christ. And may we not walk away from here unaffected. God, may we, may we be changed, not just intellectually, but deeply in our will, in our emotions, in the seed of our affections. God, change us. Help us to see so that Jesus would be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. This is the fourth of the I am statements. We've come to four of these now. We saw Jesus saying, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6, verse 35. We saw Jesus saying, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8, verse 12. We saw Jesus saying, I am the door in John chapter 10, verse 9. And now he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Um, These I am statements are him identifying himself with God. I am God and I am um, an aspect of God's good design for you uh, because of who he is and because of what he's going to do. I am the good shepherd. For our time this morning, I just want to break this out into two main sections. Jesus is our good shepherd and he saves his sheep, number one. And Jesus is our good shepherd and he secures his sheep. So he saves sheep and he secures sheep. And then we're going to see a response to that in verses 19 through 21. But first, let's look at Jesus saving his sheep. He's a good shepherd and he saves his sheep. This is verses 11 through 15. Jesus starts by saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, we talked before about the Greek language. The Greek language is annoyingly specific. Um, it's, it's specific for a very good reason, and because it's so specific, it's so difficult to understand. It takes a lot to figure it out. Uh, I'm still working my way through it to figure out all the nuances. But here, in this text, there are two main words in the Greek for good. There's the word agathos, um, where we get the name agatha. That's a Greek word that means good. But it means morally good, intrinsically valuable, good because of who you are and what you do. This is not that word, even though Jesus is definitely morally good. This is the word kalos, which is a word that it's good, but it means um, not morally good, but but worthy, uh, valuable, um, noble. Some translations would even say beautiful or wonderful. Jesus is setting himself apart from the other shepherds, the under-shepherds that we saw last week, the Pharisees, who just want to kill and destroy and do not lead with selfless service and selfless love. Jesus says, I am noble, I am worthy, I am lovely, I am beautiful. 
And he compares himself to these hired hands. Verse 12, he was a hired hand and not a shepherd. He is somebody who is a, a, a slave, somebody who is a servant that's been um, paid to take care of the sheep. These hired hands don't care about the sheep. They haven't seen the sheep be birthed or born. They haven't taken care of the sheep from day one. They don't, they don't care at all. They just, it's a paycheck for them. So give me money. And, and if there's a wolf coming to snatch away a sheep, I, I'm not going to take care of that sheep. I want my paycheck. I want to be alive. I'm not going to stand in between a wolf and a, a hungry animal and my poor little sheep here. It's not my sheep. I don't care. Take it, go ahead, and I'll just tell the shepherd, I'm sorry, there was one sheep that was lost on my watch, but give me my paycheck. That's Jesus' reason here. That's his logic. He was a hired hand, verse 12, and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep. If you're the owner of the sheep, you're going to love them. You're going to know them. But if you're just a hired hand, if it's just a paycheck for you, then you see the wolf coming and you leave the sheep. You flee. The wolf snatches them and they scatter. He flees, verse 13, because he is a hired hand, And is not concerned, has no concern about the sheep. He has no interest in the sheep. So he's telling the Pharisees, you are hired hands and you've failed in your job. You've let wolves come in. You are the wolves that have snatched away my sheep. So in response to that, verse 14, in opposition to that, the the exact uh, opposite. I am the good shepherd. Literally, I am the shepherd, the good one. Um, I am a shepherd, just like the Pharisees are shepherds, but the Pharisees are bad shepherds. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. So in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm gathering a flock for myself. I'm calling them out of the fold, which we saw last week. That fold is Israel. I'm calling them out of a a traditional system of laws and rules that can get you access to God. That's not possible. You can't gain entrance into heaven by what you do. You gain entrance by going through Jesus. And so he says, I'm calling a sheep. I'm calling a people out of the fold of this false religion. How is he going to do that? He says, I'm going to do that by laying down my life for the sheep. I'm going to do that by dying. But Jesus says this in a very specific way. He doesn't just say, I will die for my sheep. Um, If he wanted to say that, he would have probably used uh, one of two Greek words. I lay down my life, which he could have said bios, where we get biology. I lay down my life, my my existence, my uh, my breath, my my body. Um, He also could have used zoe, which is where we get um, zoology, again, studying life. Um, That's my life. I lay down my life. But he doesn't use those two words. He uses a Greek word, suke, which means uh, soul, my entire being, who I am at the inmost part. So literally, I am laying down my soul, everything that I am. I'm not just giving my life. I'm giving every part of me for the sheep. I'm giving every single aspect of who I am to bear the wrath of God on behalf of those that I am dying for. I'm taking care of them. And because of that, I'm a good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The hired hand isn't going to do that. They don't give themselves, give of themselves at all. So he tells the story. Hired hands won't do that. Drop down to verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. You could, you could put in there for those words, no. You could put in there uh, intimate love. I am intimately acquainted. I love my sheep. I know them. I've, in this analogy of shepherd and sheep, I've seen that I was there for their birth. I took care of them. I, I helped nurse them to life. You remember all the way back in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 4, when, when Adam knew Eve. It's a, it's a euphemism to be able to describe intimate knowledge. And the intimate knowledge, the intimate love that Adam had for Eve produced a child. So here, Jesus says, I have an intimate love for you. I care about you. The Pharisees don't care. The Pharisees don't love. I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life and I love my own. I know my own and my own know me. You say, how well do we know Jesus? How well does does Jesus' own sheep, how well do they know Jesus? Jesus answers in verse 15 and he says, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I am the good shepherd and my own know me. 
They know me. I know them and they know me exactly the way that the father knows me. Jesus is bound to the father in the exact same way that you and I are bound to Jesus. That's an unbreakable way. You can't be taken out of Jesus's hands in the same way that Jesus's relationship with the father is unbreakable. So Jesus says, you can rest secure. I will die for you. I will give everything for you because I love you and I know you and you know me. What a, what a blessed statement that, that is. How many times do you think, I am just a messed up sinner. I, I, I look worse today than I did yesterday and the day before. Things aren't going well for me in my spiritual life. My sanctification seems to be stalling. Do I even love Jesus? Do I even know him? If you're following Jesus, Jesus says you do know him. And even in the midst of your difficulties in this life, even in the midst of being entrenched in sin, Jesus says you still know me in the exact same unbreakable way that I know the Father and the Father knows me. It can't be broken. I love you. And I will lay down my life to purchase you. So I'm coming to gain a flock to gather a flock together to myself to give them life abundantly. How do I give them life? I give them life by dying. He saves his sheep by giving his own life. He gives abundant life to them by letting his own life be taken. But it doesn't just end there. So he says, I lay down my life for the sheep, for the sheep that I've been discussing, that I've been talking about, those in the fold of Israel. But it doesn't just end there. And this is where point number two, Jesus secures his sheep. He doesn't just save them. He secures them. And this is in verse 16. And we have to slow down here because this verse is so filled with encouragement. This verse is amazing. Jesus says, I have other sheep, verse 16, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So however many sheep Jesus has in the world, they are known to Jesus by Jesus and ultimately will respond to his voice. Have you ever thought, wouldn't it be cool if we lived back in Bible times and, and uh, somehow we were involved in, in the biblical stories and, and our names showed up in the Bible? Sometimes when I think that, I think, you know what, if my name was in the Bible, if I had some story written about me, it'd probably be a really bad one that some pastor would be preaching about, don't live like that guy. Um, so we probably don't want to be in the Bible. But we're in the Bible. Verse 16 is about you and me. Jesus said, I have a flock of sheep that are in one fold. And that fold is ethnic Israel. And I'm drawing them out of that religious system that's not saving them, that can't save them. But verse 16, I have other sheep which aren't of this fold. So if we've got a Jewish fold, then the other fold is a Gentile fold. I have other sheep. And if you are a Gentile believer here this morning, Jesus is talking about you. You are on Jesus' mind when he says these words. He's thinking about you when he says, I have other sheep that aren't in this fold that I'm going to go get. I'm going to go get them. And what I want us to see this morning is the impossibility of Jesus not making this happen. There's, there's no possible chance that what Jesus says is going to happen doesn't happen. There's no possibility. And I think that you'll see this as we go slowly through verse 16. There's four statements that Jesus makes that we need to underline, we need to star, we need to write down in the margin of our Bibles. You need to see these words. First statement, I have other sheep. I have them. I have them. They're not of this fold, but I have them. I already have sheep, and I'm going to bring them. I must bring them. Go back to verse 3 and 4. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep. They're his own. And he calls them by name, and he leads them out. And when he puts forth all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. So Jesus says, I have other sheep. Now, they're not believing yet. They don't believe me yet, but they're mine. They're mine. Now, that should instantly raise a question in your mind. 
How can Jesus have other sheep that are his that don't believe in him yet? How can that happen? Don't you become a sheep because you believe? This is where Jesus is being very precise to tell us, you will believe in me because you are my sheep. You will believe in me because you are my sheep. So how can Jesus have sheep, those that he loves, that he knows, those that are saved, before they even respond in faith and come to him, right? He says, I have sheep and they will come to me. Not I have sheep because they came to me. How do we reconcile that? The answer is because the father has them and the father is giving them. The father has the sheep and he's going to give them to the son. Go to chapter 17, John chapter 17. This is all over the gospel of John. John chapter 17, verse 6. In the high priestly prayer that I cannot wait to get to this section of scripture. The gospel of John just keeps getting better and better. It's amazing. I love this gospel. John chapter 17, verse 6. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name, Father, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So how does Jesus have sheep that have not yet believed in him? Because the Father owns them. He has them. He has saved them through the work that the Son's going to do, and he's going to give them to the Son. The Father owns them, and he's giving them to Jesus. Turn back to chapter 6, verse 37. Chapter 6, verse 37, John is writing about Jesus' words here, uh, the bread of life, saying hard statements. And he says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So I have sheep because the Father has sheep, and the Father is giving those sheep to me. Father's giving them. So I have sheep. That's statement number one. Jesus has sheep that have not believed, that have not followed, but will. And that's point number two here. I must, look at what he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. I must bring them also. Circle that word must. Uh, Literally in the Greek, it is necessary that I bring them. Um, It's going to happen. The reason why I say circle that word must is you and I are saved because of that word must. You and I are saved because Jesus says, I have other sheep and it has to happen that I save them. It has to happen. Your salvation happens because of that word must. He says, I have to bring them to myself. Now, how does he do that? How does he bring you and me to himself to follow him? How does he do that? Well, verse 3, he answers that. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep, what? They hear his voice. He calls his own by name, and he leads them out. This is why we preach the word. How do we start following Jesus as the good shepherd? We hear his voice. Where Where is his voice? His voice is found here. Nowhere else. This is where his voice is. So we hear his voice and we follow him. Turn to chapter 20. Turn to John chapter 20. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Verse 21, John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to his disciples, peace be with you. Just as the father has sent me, I also send you you. So as the Father has sent me to call my own, I also send you to call, to speak, to preach, to bear witness, to testify. I'm sending you the exact same way that the Father sent me, with words on your lips that will be the voice of the shepherd calling his sheep. Go to chapter 17, verse 20. Chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's praying for his disciples, his 12. But then he says, I'm not just asking for them. I'm asking for others as well. And I'm asking for those who also will believe in me through their what? Through their word. So he says, okay, the disciples are going to go out and they're going to share the word And through their word, other disciples will be made, will come and start following me because of the word 
that the disciples speak. So he says in John chapter 10, I must bring them also. How is that must going to happen? By the word of God going forth. By the power of the word of God. By the voice of the shepherd resounding in the ears and the souls of the sheep that he has died to secure. Guys, what an awesome privilege to be a pastor, to be a preacher. What an awesome privilege to be a witness and a testimony. You and I, as brothers and sisters um, in the family of God, you and I have an awesome privilege and, and task with the words of Christ on our lips to go out as, as his mouthpiece and to share the voice of the shepherd. And as we share the voice of the shepherd, God is saying, I will bring sheep. As they hear my voice, they will come. They will come. That's my prayer every Sunday morning. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we preach the Bible. This is why we study the Bible. There's nothing else in the world that has the promise that as it goes forth, it will save. Nothing else. That's why my opinions are pointless. My opinions are useless. They don't save. God's word saves. And that's my prayer every Sunday morning, that if, if any of you in this room are not saved, are not sheep following Jesus the way that he has commanded you to follow, that you would hear his voice and that you would be drawn and he would call you out to himself even right now. What an awesome privilege to testify of the grace of God. So I have, number one, I have other sheep. Number two, I must bring them. That's going to happen. Number three, they will hear my voice. You could circle will. It will happen. They will hear my voice. They will listen. You can harden your heart as long as you want, but if you are a sheep, God's going to break through that hardness of heart and you will hear him. That's what he did with Saul on the road to Damascus. You will hear my voice. This is the promise of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will never prevail against it. I will. It's not up for grabs. Um, there, there was a, a blog post that I read a while ago that said that Jesus, when he was on the cross, uh, was looking down at his disciples. That's already pretty wrong because there was only one there. Looking down at his disciples and wondering... I spent my entire life training, teaching, pleading. And as he's on the cross dying, he's looking down at this ragtag bunch of hooligans and he's wondering, will they keep the message? Will they take that message to the world? That's, that's blasphemous to say that. To say that Jesus is on the cross wondering if the gospel is going to thunder forth in the world. He knows it's going to because he said, they will hear my voice. My disciples will take the word. I have sheep that are not of this fold. This, the word has to go out into the, all of the earth. It's going to happen so that the Gentiles will come to believe in me as well. Jesus has secured their salvation. Jesus has secured your salvation and he has secured your coming to him to be saved. He's not wondering. It's not up for grabs. Turn back to verse 4. When he puts forth all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow because they know his voice. They follow because they know his voice. Turn to verse 27. We are going to get to these verses in a couple weeks, um, but they connect so well with Jesus being the shepherd and talking about sheep that we're going to look at them a little bit this morning. Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, they do, I know them, and they follow me. Those are three things that will always happen. They hear my voice, they know, uh, I know them, they know me, and they follow me. I know that that's going to happen. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So it's not like Jesus is wondering, will, will my people follow me? I died for them. And I hope they'll follow me. I wonder, are they going to follow? Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Jesus is not wondering. He died to secure salvation. And he has done that. By the way, that's how we know that we're sheep. Are you following Jesus? 
Are you following him? Do you have your affections changed? Do you love him? If you are not following him, verse 26 is for you. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now again, Jesus is being very clear. You don't become a sheep of Jesus because of your belief. Right? He says, you're not my sheep. Therefore, you won't believe. Verse 26, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. That's a difficult statement. You aren't a sheep because you believe. You believe because you're a sheep. And you don't believe because you're not a sheep. Now, instantly, that should, it probably sends a lot of questions going off in your mind and your soul. And I understand those questions. That's a very difficult statement. That's a very sobering statement. But we cannot say that's an unclear statement, right? That's a very clear statement. What we do with it will either submit to the clarity or will befuddle the clarity. We can either muddy the waters here or we can say it makes sense or it's clear. It might not make full sense, but that's okay because I'm not God. Our human brains get us into so much trouble. Our human brains are finite. And we start to try and put ourselves in the mind of God and figure out, well, how does this work? If, if somebody uh, doesn't believe in Jesus, then, then it's because Jesus never called to them. And, well, that's not fair of God. Well, that's not what the Bible says. God is just. God is not unfair. So do you and your human reasoning think that you're going to outthink God? Do you think you're going to put him into a corner that you have to answer for yourself theologically on this one because I don't understand it and this is a tough question and somehow we're going to find a loophole in God's logic? God is God. We are not. But there are certain things that God's word clearly teaches. This word, th- these words in verse 26 could not be any clearer. You cannot believe in Jesus if you are not one of his sheep. That can't be any clearer. And as it raises questions, I just want to plead with you. I believe that we draw inferences from the Bible that aren't even there. We make problems in the Bible that aren't necessarily even there. Our our little brains, however magnificently intelligent you are, it's a very finite, small, tiny brain that's trying to understand the mind of God. And when we do that, when our finite brains try to understand God's infinite brain, we, we make problems that are nowhere to be found in the Bible instead of just bowing to the clarity of Scripture. Just bow to the clarity of Scripture. I, I've heard so many questions like, well, I guess I don't have to share the gospel then. I don't have to share the gospel Uh, Because if God already has sheep that he died for and he says they're going to come, I don't have to share the gospel. No, that's dead wrong. The Bible says that nowhere. The Bible says you need to share the gospel. Even though in God's mind he has sheep that he died for and they will come, he commands that you and I share the gospel. So there's a way in which, and we already saw a couple of those verses, we need to be the mouthpiece of God so that those people would come. So, no, the Bible's clear. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to everyone. Uh, Okay, so I don't have to do anything to be a sheep. I don't have to do anything to be a sheep. If I I am saved by God, if I am called and elect by God, I just don't have to do anything. No. Have you been here for the study of the gospel of John? You must believe. If you don't believe, you will prove that you are not a sheep. You must believe. You must repent. You must confess your sins. You must turn. That's an inference that's drawn out of the Bible that's not even there. Repent, follow, clear commands that we need to bow to. Okay, so I I guess that God is just up in heaven uh, and he's rejecting people. People are knocking on the door of heaven saying, I want in. And Jesus looks at his list. Oh, you're not my sheep. I'm sorry. And he sends them to hell. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible is abundantly clear. We are all enemies of God. Nobody's knocking on the door of heaven saying, I want in, and God's saying, I'm sorry, you're not one of my sheep. Nobody's doing that. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins. Nobody can choose God. There's no one who does right. There's no one who seeks after God. We're all his enemies. So when you come to verses that are abundantly clear, 
however difficult they might be to reconcile with other places of Scripture, just take both of them and go, yeah, they're both true. They're both true. They're absolutely both true at the exact same time. So Jesus says, I have other sheep. I must bring them. They will hear my voice. And uh, point number four, they will become one flock with one shepherd. They will. It's impossible that this doesn't happen. I have my sheep. I die for my sheep. And they will come. They will come. Uh, here's a question. How long will we be a flock together? Is it like he, he draws us all in together and he says, hey, we're a flock. And then we go, yeah, we don't want to be anymore. And we scatter. How long will God keep us in his fold? How long will he do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So how long will we be a flock? For all of eternity. For all of eternity. No one in that flock will ever perish. No one in that flock will ever be snatched away. No one in that flock will ever lose their salvation. That's an impossibility in the scriptures. We will be in the flock of God forever. And notice who is going to be in this flock. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. So I have my Jewish fold, I have my Gentile fold, and I'm bringing them together and they will become one flock. With one shepherd. You can write down verse, uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Um, John also wrote that book too. So John knows exactly who he's talking about when Jesus says, I'm going to make them all one flock. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says that Jesus is the lamb who is worthy because he has been slain to bring to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group. Brothers and sisters, there's no racism with our Savior. There's no ethnic privilege that you get access because of who you are ethnically. Jesus says, I have a lot of sheep from all sorts of different people groups. And when we get to heaven, we're going to be one flock. No racism. We're going to be one flock together. The Gentiles at that time, you know, were hated. Jesus knew that. And that's why he says, I'm calling them. That's why he went to the Syrophoenician woman. That's why he went to various Gentiles to take care of them, to show the Jews, I didn't just come for Jewish people. I came to take one flock from every ethnic group together. John chapter 11, verse 51 and 52. Just turn there really quickly. This is the high priest saying uh, that Jesus is going to die for the people so that the whole nation wouldn't perish. And verse 51 says, now he, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together a flock into one fold, the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's you. That's, that's me. Praise the Lord. Like, Paul says in Romans 9 that we've been grafted in. The gospel was supposed to go to the Jews and they were supposed to get it alone and then they were supposed to send it out. They didn't believe. They rejected their Messiah and because of that rejection, the gospel went to the Gentiles. Praise the Lord. We've been grafted into the promises that were given to the Jews. So, I have other sheep. Back in John chapter 10, verse 16. I have other sheep. They're not of this fold. And I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. So, you could write in the margin in verse 16. Actually, in this whole chapter. You could write in the margin Romans 8, 28 through 29. Remember the, the chain of security in Romans 8, 28 and 29? Let's look at it just really quickly to remind ourselves of this. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And 29 and 30 are this chain. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. He knew his own sheep. And he predestined, to be, he predestined that they would become conformed into the image of his son to save them. So that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. 
His call is going forth and his sheep will hear his call. And these whom he called, he also justified. He saves, he declares righteous. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You and I are not glorified yet. But Paul uses this amazing tense in the Greek language to say, it's as good as if it were already done. So I'm I'm saying that you're glorified, even though you haven't been glorified yet. I'm saying it in the past tense because it's as good as done. There's no chance you will not be glorified. That chain of security in Romans 8 is the exact chain of security that we see in John 10. Just listen to this, uh, this reasonable argument that Jesus is saying. He's reasoning his argument here, and this is what he says. Those whom the Father chose for himself, he gives to the Son. And those, for whom, uh, those that belong to the Son, the Son will lay down his life for them. And those for whom he lays down his life, he calls to himself. And those who hear his voice will follow. And those who will follow will have eternal life. And those to whom he gives eternal life, they can never be taken from his hand. And there will be one flock and one shepherd for all of eternity. This is how secure you are. This is how impossible it is for you to be taken out of the hand of God. This is Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He did the work. He called you. He drew you. He saved you. He will sanctify you and he will glorify you. If it was dependent upon us, we would lose our salvation. That's why we're saying he will hold me fast. When I feel my my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my grip. I could never hold on. My love grows cold. So he must hold me fast. That's why we're saying, come now, found. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart. Take and seal it. You do the work to save me, to secure me. You preserve me. So, believer here this morning, brother and sister, I want you to be unshakable. I want you to be unshakable. This kind of talk is everywhere in the Bible. Book of Romans, Galatians, Revelation, everywhere. You are secure in the hand of God. And because we know that we are secure in the hand of God and because we know these promises that God's voice is going to go forth and it's going to resound in the world and as it resounds, the the sheep that God has for himself will hear and will respond. We know, mark this, we know our evangelism will not fail. It cannot fail. God will build his church And the gates of hell will never prevail against it. So you cannot be snatched out of the hand of God. And the evangelism that we we share God's testimony, it cannot ultimately fail. That's why when I share the gospel with people, share the gospel with somebody on Friday, they just kind of seemed, yeah, that's fine for you. It doesn't discourage me. I'm saddened for them. I'm not discouraged, number one, because Jesus told me that one out of the four soils is going to get saved, not... Uh, that the majority of the time people are not going to respond in faith. But number two, when I'm speaking to a sheep and I speak the word of God, at the right time, God will draw them to himself. And I know that. I know that with confidence. Let's finish this section out. Verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. This isn't saying that that... God the Father didn't love the Son, but now he loves him because of some work. You could almost put that, uh, the word glory in there for love. Um, the, the love that the Father has given, he's going to give the sheep to Jesus um, because he lays down his life. He's going to give glory to the Son and exalt the Son in his sacrifice because he is perfect in his obedience. But notice here, verse 17, the, our good shepherd is saying, I'm going to die. Uh, if a shepherd dies, that's really bad news for the sheep, right? We talk a lot at church about uh, us being called sheep in the Bible is a well-intended insult. It's a well-meant insult. And we talk all the time about how sheep are stupid, and they are, and that's good to talk about. But here, Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about the goodness of the shepherd. And he says, I'm going to die. And now we go to, wait a second, if a shepherd dies and we have no shepherd, sheep will die too. And that's why I love that the Father gives a command to the Son in verse 18. 
uh, die and then rise. You gotta, you gotta be alive again because if you're not alive, the sheep have no shepherd and the sheep will die. So you need to die to save the sheep, to bring the sheep to yourself, and then you need to get back up and rise from the dead to sanctify the sheep and to call them home. That's why he says in verse 18, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down, even as he says on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, and I'm going to do that because the Father commanded me to do that. The Father knew, I have given you sheep, and you're going to draw them to yourself by dying, but you better get up from the dead so that they don't die. So Jesus saves his sheep as our good shepherd, and he secures his sheep as our good shepherd. What's the response? Verse 19, a division. Again, John says it. A division occurred again. Here we go again. Who is this guy? A division occurs among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? But others were saying, these aren't the sayings of a demon-possessed man. He's not insane. Nobody speaks like this if they're insane. These are crazy words, but they're not insane words. And, by the way, a demon can't open the eyes of the blind, can he? So they're wrestling. Who is this man? And that's exactly where John wants to leave us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Do you believe that he is your good shepherd? He died for you. He loves you. He will unite you with his other sheep and he will secure you for all of eternity. Do you believe that? There's three main responses to this. In in conclusion, there's three main responses. That Jesus loves you, died for you, drew you, calls you a sheep loves you unconditionally, secures you eternally? Response number one is, no way. No way, not me. No way, not me. People would say, Patrick, if you only knew the things that I've done, if you only knew what I've done, you would know that there's no way Jesus would ever love me. There's no way that Jesus could ever love me. And somehow you place your sin as a barrier between you and receiving the love of God. Um, God is bigger than your sin. You are a great sinner. I am a great sinner. But our Savior is greater still. That's why we sing songs like grace that is greater than all of our sin. So if you're here this morning... And you would say in your heart, I don't think that Jesus could love me. I don't think that he could get past my sin. My sin is somehow so grievous, so offensive. You're right that your sin is offensive and grievous. That's why Jesus had to die the death that he did on on the cross for you. But he did it because he loves you. So no, you cannot say, no, he can't love me. He can and he does. And he proved that once and for all by dying on the cross. He loves you. Remember the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Whoever's without sin cast the first stone. And he says, do you see anyone who condemns you? I don't either. Go and sin no more. There is grace at the foot of the cross. Come and receive that grace this morning. And be forgiven of all of your sin. Response number two is to say, of course he loves me. Response number one is, well, there's no way he could ever love me. Response number two is basically, well, there's no way he ever could not love me. And and we have two ways of saying that. Either number one, we say, I'm really not that bad, so of course he loves me, which we can all just say, that's terribly prideful. Of course he loves me. Maybe you think you're better than others. So you think you're cool with God. Yeah, Jesus needed to cleanse a little bit of sin, but not a lot. Not like one of those people. You can hear the words of the Pharisees ringing in your ear in Luke 18. Praise God, I'm not like them, like that tax collector. No, no, we're, we need to be crying out, be merciful to me, the sinner. But I, I, I hope and pray that that isn't the way that we would respond. Of course he loves me, because look, I'm awesome. Um, we're not beyond responding that way, because we're really not awesome. <laughs> but I think that we might respond a little bit differently. Hopefully we are a church that loves the Lord, that loves the word of God, that is theologically taught, theologically astute. Hopefully we know deep things of God. And so sometimes 
people who know deep things about God, when they hear God loves you, they go, of course, of course he loves me because the Bible says it. Of course he does. Of course he has to because he told me that he had to. And you don't let it bear weight on your soul. You just kind of store theological truths in your, in your mind. Here's another truth. He loves me. Here's another truth. He died for me. Great. I know those truths. Instead of letting it change your affections, he loves you and died to make you his own when you hated him, knowing that you would still be uh, offending him, sinning against him. He died to love you for all of eternity. So, response number three, the only proper response is to let these truths lead us to worship. Worship and obedience. Worship to say, God, you are amazingly worthy of all praise and all honor because you loved me when I was unlovely. And obedience, you called me, I will follow you. I'm a disciple now, I'm going to follow you because you called me to yourself. Listen to his voice daily and follow him. One last passage, just turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 13. This is really the benediction for our morning. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now, the God of peace, he's the God of peace because our souls aren't warring and raging in us, in us anymore, wondering, are we going to be saved? Wondering, are we going to make it to the end? No, he's the God of peace. He made peace through the blood of Jesus. Now may the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. That's Jesus Christ. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. So he brought Jesus up so he can raise you up. Verse 21, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God, I pray that you would be pleased to work in our souls, to grow worship, to grow obedience, to grow a love for our Savior, that we would see intellectual, theological truths, yes, but they would lead us to worship. They would lead us to obedience and lead us to awe and wonder. God, we love you because you first loved us and you gave yourself for us. May we rest securely in the finished work of Jesus. And may our faith be unshakable. God, strengthen tired hands. Strengthen weary hearts. Give courage to worn out feet. God, give sweet peace to worn out mouths that preach the gospel and maybe aren't seeing any fruit. May we know as a church that there's no way that our evangelism can fail. You have sheep out there. May we be faithful to go and preach the word. God, we love you and we thank you so much for your grace. May we live in it this day. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.